The Virgin of Valkarion, Chapter 1 The sun was low in the west, and a thin chill wind was blowing along the hills when Alfric saw Valkarion below him. He reined in his hengist and sat for a moment scouting the terrain with the hard-learned caution of many wandering years. Save for himself, the broad highway that flung its time-raddled length down the rock slope was empty. On either hand, the harsh, gullied hills stretched away to the dusky horizon, wind whispering in grey scrub and low, twisted trees. Here and there, evening fires glimmered red from peasants' huts, where the broken columns of temples and ruins these many thousand years loomed against the darkening greenish-blue. Behind him, the land faded toward the raw, naked desert from which he had come. A falc hovered on silent wings far above, watching for a movement that might mean prey. Otherwise, he was alone. Still, he felt uneasy. A prickling not due to the gathering cold tingled along his spine, and he had spent too much of his life in the nearness of death to ignore such warnings. He looked ahead, down the great road. It twisted and swooped between the fantastically wind-carven crags, a dim white ribbon in the deepening twilight. The smooth stone blocks were cracked apart by ages so long that the thought made his head reel, and in places the harsh, wiry vegetation had grown through and over it. But still the old imperial way was there. The ancients had built mightily. Halfway down the huge slope of hillside, the road ran into Valkarion City. Below that level, the cliffs dropped sharply, white with old salt streaks, to the dead sea bottoms, a vast depression, sand and salt and thin, bitter plant growth, reaching out to the sunset horizon. Lights were winking on in the city. It was not far, and Alfred had no wish to sleep in the open or under some peasant's stinking roof. So, why not go ahead? The city his goal was there, and not to hold him from its save. The hengist wickered and stamped its broad cloven hoofs. Its eyes rolled uneasily, and Afric's hand slid to his sword hilt, if the beast also sensed a watchfulness. He caught the stir in the thick brush clump out of the corner of one eye. Only a hunter would have noticed it. Only a rover at once, without stopping to think, would have struck spurs into his mount. The hengist leaped, and the dart whispered past Alfric's face. One scratch from the poisoned missile of the southern blowguns was enough to kill a man. Alfric yelled and flung his hengist at the brush. The sword whined from its scabbard, flamed in his hand. Two men slipped from the thicket as he crashed into it. They were of a race foreign even to these southlands, small and lithe and amber-skinned. They wore only loincloths. All hair had been shaved from their heads and bodies and the iron slave collars were about their necks. Vaguely, Alfric was aware of the brands on their foreheads, but at the moment he was only concerned with their weapons. One skipped aside, raising the blowgun to his lips. Alfric yanked the javelin from its holster by his saddle and launched it left-handed, through the slave's belly and out his back. Steel hissed beside him as the other swung with a scimitar. The hengist screamed as the blade cut its sleek grey hide. The forehoofs lashed out, the great hooked beak snapped, and the slave lay a bloody ruin on the imperial way. Alfric reined in his prancing mount and looked around, breathing hard. An ambush, by the bear of Ruho, 
It meant to kill him. But why? A poor solitary wanderer was no worthwhile quarry for footpads. Anyway, these weren't outlaws but slaves. They must have been set here with orders to destroy some specific person. But no one in Valkarion knew Alfric. He was a stranger without friend or enemy. Had they mistaken him for someone else? That would be hard to do even in this dim light. He was too plainly a barbarian outlander. It made no sense. By Luiger, it made no sense. He leaned over, studying the dead men. They were secretive, even in the sprawled, puppet-like helplessness of death. He could learn nothing, except, hold, what was that owner's brand? Double Crescent. The Double Crescent. The knowledge shocked home like a spear thrust, and Alfred sat silent for a long moment, with the wind ruffling his night-black hair. The Double Crescent, the sign of the two moons, that meant the slaves were temple property. They'd been under orders of the priesthood of the moons, which was the old imperial faith, and still the state religion of Arcarion. But if the temple sent out assassins... Alfric's eyes travelled up to Amaris, the father moon, high in the darkening heavens. The nearer one, Danos, had not yet risen, out of the west, as was its strange wont, but its rocket-like speed would carry it up to, and beyond, the father before dawn. Aye, aye, now he remembered that tonight the moons would mate. On such nights, the temple no doubt had great ceremonies afoot. Perhaps this matter of the assassination was involved in some religious proceeding. Whispered legends and the mouldering history books alike agreed that the turning points of the old empire's fate had come on nights when the moons mated. No doubt that still held good for the withered remnant of territory which Valkarion still ruled. The moons were not important in the religion of the Aslican barbarians, whose chief gods were the wind and the stars, the nameless powers of winter and death. But a tingle of fear ran along Alfric's spine at the thought of what might be abroad that night. To Luigo with it, his lean face twisted in a snarl, and he snapped sword and javelin back in place and rode trotting on toward Valkarion. Come ambush or priesthood or the moons themselves, he meant to sleep in the city tonight. Behind him the hovering falc wheeled down toward the two still forms, sprawled on the highway. The sun slipped into the dead sea-bottom, and night came with a silent rush. Amaris rode high in a froth of stars, painting the hills with a dim, eerie silver in which monstrous shadows lurked. The wind blew stronger, colder, with a faint smell of salt like the ghost of the long-dried ocean. Alfric wrapped his worn cloak tighter about him against its searching chill. Save for the vast echoing howl of the wind, the hiss of sand and rustle of leaves, he was alone in the dark. He heard the creak and jingle of his harness, the rapid clop-clop of the hengist's hoofs against a background of hooting night. The crumbling city walls loomed darkly before him, rearing enormously against the myriad brilliant, unwinking stars. He had half expected to find the gates closed, but instead a fire blazed in the tunnel which the gateway made through the walls. A dozen city guards stood about it. They sprang to alertness as he rode up, a sudden wall of spears leaning forth in front of him. Behind that shining steel, the light picked out helmets and corslets and faces drawn tight with strain. Who goes? called one. His voice shook a little. A stranger, but a friend, said Alfric in his north-accented Valkyriona. He rode into the circle of firelight, and sat in a watchful quiet as their eyes raked him. Plainly, he was an outland barbarian, 
taller by a head than most of the southerners, his hard-thewed body clad in the plain leather and ringmail of a northern warrior, his sword a double-edged claymore rather than the scimitar or short-sword of the south. His skin was a sunburned leathery brown, where theirs was tawny, his long slant eyes a brilliant green, where theirs were dark, and there were jeweled rings in his pointed ears. He went clean-shaven in accordance with southern custom, but the high cheekbones, thin straight nose, and long jaw were not theirs. Who are you, stranger? demanded the guard captain. And what is your errand? I am Alfric, Beorden's son, of Aslak, he answered, truly enough, and I am simply wandering about in search of employment. Perhaps Valkarian could use another sword arm, or some merchant may want a good warrior to help guard his caravan, or he spread his calloused hands in a general gesture. No need to add that perhaps some highwayman was in town recruiting, or some would-be rebel was in search of an experienced war captain who would help for the loot. In his years of adventuring, Alfred had held most jobs, lawful or otherwise. The guards seemed more taut and wary than the occasion warranted. Surely they had passed stranger and more dubious visitors than a single barbarian. Perhaps they wanted a bribe to let him by, or... The captain nodded stiffly. You may enter, since you are alone, he said, and then with a friendliness not quite natural. If you wish good cheap lodging, and a place where men come who might want to hire a fighter, try the Falcon Fire Drake. First turn to your right, three streets down, one to your left. Good luck, stranger. Alfred scowled. For a moment he paused, tensing. There was something here, to Luiga with it. His nerves were still on edge from the fight. If something was supposed to happen, let it. Thanks, he said, and rolled into the city. It was like most of the old imperial towns, somewhat larger and busier than the rest, no more. On either side of the broad paved street rose the ancient columned facades of the empire, proud building even now, when their treasures were long gone, and their corners worn smooth by the winds of millennia. There were lamps lighting the main ways, their yellow glow splashing on a milling throng of folk. Most were native Valkyrionas, merchants in their flowing cloaks and fur-trimmed silken robes, workers and artisans in tunics of blue or grey, peasants in clumsy homespun garments and fur caps, swaggering young soldiers in red tunics and polished metal, painted harlots, ragged beggars, near-naked slaves. The others of a city where life still pulsed strong through the days of glory were more thousands of years behind than it was pleasant to count. But there were strangers, robed traders from Tsungchi and Begzarar, riding their humped dromads, black-skinned men of Suda and Astrak, coppery feather-cloaked mercenaries from Talus Yutl, fair-headed barbarians from Romanstad and the Marskin Hills. All the world seemed met at Valkarion and a babble of tongues and a swirl of colours. There were many of the tonsured priests of the moons abroad in long red and black robes, with a double crescent hanging from a silver chain about the neck. After each shaven pate padded one or more of the yellow slaves, silent and watchful, hand on knife or blowgun. Alfred scowled and decided he had best find lodging before venturing out into such company. A trading centre like Valkarion necessarily tolerated all creeds, Still, someone had tried to kill him. He edged out of the throng and followed the captain's directions. They brought him into one savoury part of town, where mouldering blank-walled houses crowded a winding labyrinth of narrow, unlightened streets and stinking alleys. Men of dubious aspect moved furtively through the shadowy maze, 
are brawled drunkenly before the tawdry inns and bawdy houses, a strange place for a city guardsman to direct him to. But no priests or soldiers were in sight, which was recommendation enough. Alfred rode on till he saw the sign of the falcon firedrake creaking in the chill gusty wind above a gloomy doorway. He dismounted and knocked, one hand on his dagger. The door groaned open a crack, and a thin, scar-faced man looked out, his own hand on a knife. I want lodging for myself and my hengist, said Alfric. The landlord's hooded eyes slid up and down the barbarian's tall form. An indrawn breath hissed through his lips. You from the Northlands? he asked. Aye. Alfric flung open the door and stepped into the taproom. It was dim and dirty and low-sealed. A few smoky torches, throwing a guttering light on the hard-faced men who sat at the tables drinking the sour yellow wine of the South. They were all armed, all wary. The place was plainly a hangout of thieves and murderers. Alfric shrugged broad shoulders. It stayed in such places often enough. How much do you want? he asked. Ah, the landlord licked his lips nervously. Two crosturses for supper now and breakfast tomorrow. One soldier room and girl. The rate was so low that Alfric's eyes narrowed and his ears cocked forward in an instinctive gesture of suspicion. These southerners all named several times the price they expected to get, but he had never haggled one down as far as this fellow's asking price. Done, he said at last. But if the food is bad, or the bed lousy, or the women diseased, I'll throw you in your own pot and cut my breakfast off your ribs. Twill not be needful, noble sir, whined the landlord. He waved a thin little slave boy over. Take care of the gentleman's hengis. Alfred sat down at a corner table and ate his meal alone. The food was greasy, but not bad. From the shadows he watched his fellow guests sizing up their possibilities. That big spade-bearded fellow. He might be the head of a gang which would find an expert sword-swinger useful. And the little wizened man in the grey cloak might be a charlatan in need of a bodyguard. He grew slowly aware of their own unease. There were too many sharp glances thrown in his own direction, entirely too many, too much whispering behind hands, too much furtive loosening of sheathed daggers. There was something infernally strange going on in Valkaria. Alfred bristled like an angry jackur, but throttled in patience and got up, time enough to find all that out tomorrow. He was tired now from his long ride. He would sleep, and then in the morning look the city over. He mounted the stairs, conscious of the glances following him, and opened the door the boy showed to him. There he paused, and his hard jaw fell. The room was just a room, small, lit by one stump of candle, no furniture save a bed. Its window looked out on an alley which was like a river of darkness. It was the woman who held Alfred's eyes. She was clad only in the usual gaudy silken shift, and she sat plucking thin cords and the usual one-stringed harp. Her rings and bracelets were ordinary cheap jewjaws, but she was no common tavern bard, not she. Tall and lithe and tawny-skinned, she rose to face him. Her shining blue-black hair tumbled circly to her slim waist, framing a face as finely and proudly chiseled as a piece of ancient sculpture, broad, clear forehead, delicately arched nose, full mobile mouth, stubborn chin, long, smooth throat running down toward her high, firm breasts. Her eyes were wide-set, dark and starry, brilliant as the desert nights, 
Her lips were like red flame. When she spoke, it was music purring under the wind that whimpered outside and rattled the window sash. Welcome, stranger. Alfred gulped, licked his lips, and slowly recovered his voice. Thank you, my lovely, he moved closer to her. I had not, not thought to find one like you, here. But now that you have, she came closer, and her smile blinded him. Now that you have, what will you do? What do you think? He laughed. She bent over and blew out the candle. Chapter 2 Alfric, last desire for sleep, the girl being as skilled in the arts of love as she was beautiful. But later they fell to talking. A dim shaft of moonlight streamed through the window and etched her face against the dark, a faint, mysterious rippling of light and shadow and loveliness. He drew her closer, kissed the smooth cheek, and murmured puzzledly, Who are you? Why are you working in a place like this, when you could be the greatest courtesan in the world? Kings would be your slaves, and armies would go to battle with your name on their lips. If they only knew you, she shrugged. Fortune does strange things sometimes, he said. I am fair, and I am here because I must be. Her slim fingers ruffled his harsh black hair. But tonight, she breathed, I am glad of it, since you came. And who are you, stranger? I am Alfric, called the Wanderer, son of Beodan the Bold, son of Asgar the Tall, from the hills and lakes of Aslak. And why did you leave your home, Alfric? I was restless. For a bleak moment he wondered why, indeed, he had ever longed to get away from the wind-whispering trees and the cool blue hills and the small, salty, sun-glinting lakes of home. From his father's great hall and farmstead, from the brawling, lusty warriors who were his comrades, from the tall, sweet girls and joys of the hunt and feast. Well, it was past now, many years past. You must have come far, said Freya. Far indeed, over most of the world, I imagine. From Aslak, pasture lands of Hengists, to the acrid red deserts of Beg Sarah, the scrub forests of Astrak and Tolokiwatl, the towered cities of Tsunchi, along the great canals which the ancient empire had built in its last days, still bringing a trickle of water from the polar snows to the starved southlands, through ruins, always ruins, the crumbling sand-filled bones of cities, which had been like jewels a hundred thousand years ago and more, pausing at the long, dull white scar which slashed across his forehead and left cheek. You have fought, she said. How you have fought? Aye, all my life, that scar. I got it at Alteris when I led the Bonsonian spears at the storming of the gates. I have been war captain, sitting beside kings, and I have been hunted outlaw with the garms baying at my heels. I have drunk the wine of warlords and eaten the gruel of peasants and stalked my own game through the rime-white highlands of Larkin. I have pulled down cities and been flung into the meanest jails. One king put a price on my head, another wanted me to take over his throne, and a third went down the streets before me, ringing a bell and crying that I was a god. But enough, Alfred stirred restlessly. Somehow he felt again uneasy, as if Freya pearled his face to hers, and the kiss lasted a long time. Presently she murmured, We have heard some rumours of great deeds and clashing swords here in Valkyrion. The story of the fall of Altaris is told in the marketplaces, 
and folk listened till far into the night. But why did you not stay with your kings and warlords and captured cities? You could have been a king yourself. I grew weary of it, he answered shortly. Weary? Of kingly power? Why not? Those courts are nothing. A barbarian ruling over one or two cities and calling himself a king and trying drearily to hold the court worthy of the title. The same, always the same endless squabbling, carrion birds quarrelling among the bones of the empire. I went on the next war, or to see the next part of the world, and ere long I learned never to stay too long in one place, lest the newness of it wear off. For carrion is ever new, Alfric. A man could live his life here, and never see all there was. Perhaps, so they told me, and it was, after all, the old seat of the empire, and its shrunken remnant of territory still greater than any other domain, so I came here to see for myself, Alfric grinned, a wolfish gleam of teeth in the night. Also, I heard tales, restlessness, a struggle for power between temple and imperium, with the emperor an old man and the last of his line, unable to get a child on his young queen Hildeborg. It seemed opportune. How so? He thought she breathed faster, lying there beside him. He chuckled, a harsh iron sound in his corded throat. How should I know, except that when such a hell's broth is bubbling, a fighting man can always scoop up loot or power, or at the very least, adventure. If nothing else, there might be the Empress. They say she's a half-barbarian herself, a princess of Corridon, and a losty wench giving hospitality to every visiting noble or knight. He felt Freya stiffen a little and added, But that doesn't interest me now, when I've found you. Freya, leave this place with me tomorrow, and you'll wear the crown jewels of Ocarion or I'll see your head on a pike above the walls, she said. Faintly through the window, in the whining night wind, they heard the crash of a great gong. Danos is rising, whispered Freya. Tonight he mates with Mother Amaris. It is said that the fates walk through the streets of Arcarion on such nights. She shivered. Indeed, they do on this eve. Perhaps, said Alfric, though the hackle rose on his neck. But how do you know? Have you not heard? Her voice shuddered, seeming to blend with the moan of wind and steady slow boom of gong. Have you not heard? The Emperor Orion is dying. He is not expected to last till dawn. The thirty-ninth dynasty dies with him, and there is no successor. The wind mumbled under the eaves, rattling the window frame and flowing darkly through the alley. Ha! Alfred laughed harshly, exultantly. A chance! By Ruo, what a chance! Of a sudden he stiffened, and the voice of danger was a great shout in his head. He sat up, cocking his ears, and heard the faint scratch and scrape, I under the window coming close. He slid from the covers and drew his sword where it lay on the floor. The boards felt cold under his bare feet. The night air fingered his skin with icy hands. What is it? whispered Freya. She sat up the dark hair tumbling past her frightened face. What is it, Alfric? He made no answer, but padded over to the window. Flattened against the wall, he stood waiting as a hand raised the sash from outside. The pale cold light of Amaris fell on the hand that now gripped the sill. A body lifted itself, one-handed, the other clutching a knife. For an instant, Alfric saw the flat, hairless face in the moonlight the double crescent brand livid against its horrible blankness. Then, in one rippling motion, the slave was inside the room. 
half a thrust, slicing his heart. As the man fell, another swarmed up behind him. He and Alfric faced each other, tableau for one instant of rivering moonlight and whining wind and remotely beating gong. Then the barbarian's long arm shot out, yanked the slave in, and twisted him in an unbreakable wrestler's grip. Talk, he hissed into the ear of the writhing creature. Talk or I'll break you bone by bone. Why are you here? He can't, said Freya. She came up to them, white in the moonlight, her long hair blowing loose about her shoulders. The temple breeds these slaves, raises them from birth to utter fanatical obedience, and see, she pointed to the dead man gaping under the window. Stooping over, Alfric saw that he had no tongue. The northerner shuddered. With a convulsive movement, he broke the neck of his prisoner and flung the body aside. What do they want? he panted. Why are they after me? There is a prophecy, but quick, there will be others. Out, down to the taproom, we must have protection. The assassins would hardly be so stupid as to leave us a way out, grunted Alfric. Any down there who might help us are probably dead or made prisoner now. No doubt these men are friends on guard, just outside the door. Men will come in pretty soon and these don't come out. Aye, that would be the way of the temple. But where, then? Where? Alfred flung on his kilt, dagger belt and baldric. Out the window, he whipped the girl to him, held her supple body against his, kissed her hard and swift as the swoop of a hunting fuck. Goodbye, Frere. You've been a wonderful companion. I'll see you again, if I live. But you c can't leave me, she gasped. The slaves will burst through. Why should they harm you? They're after me. They will. He felt her shaking against him. They will. That's their way. Oh. The door shuddered as a heavy weight was flung against it. That's there, snarled Alfric, and the boat won't hold very long. I'd like to stay and fight, but come. He grabbed his cloak off the floor and buckled it across Freya's slim, naked shoulders. I'll go first, then you jump. He balanced down the windowsill, then leaped. Even as he fell, he wondered at the agility of the slaves who had crawled up the wall. It was of rough-set stone, but even so. He hit the muck and cobblestones of the alley with the silent poise of a chakur and turned up to the window. It was just above the pit-black shadows, a square of darkness in the moon-whitened wall. Come, he called softly. Freya's body gleamed briefly in the moonlight as she sprang. He caught her in his arms, set her down, and drew his sword. Let's go, he growled. But where will the city guards protect us? Some might, she answered shakily, but most are controlled by fear of the temple's curse. Best to go toward the palace. The emperor's household troops are loyal to him and hate the priesthood which seeks to usurp his power. We can head that way, he nodded, meanwhile looking for a place to hide. He took her hand and they trotted through the thick darkness toward the dim light marking the end of the alley. Other feet padded in the gloom. Alfric snarled soundlessly and pulled himself and the girl against a wall. He was almost blind in the dark, but he strained his ears, pointing them this way and that in search of the enemy. The others had also stopped moving. They would be waiting for him to stir, and their own motionlessness would surely outlast the girls. Anyway, the pursuit from the room would be after him in another moment, when the door gave way. Run, he snapped. He felt a dart blow by the spot where he had spoken and lengthened his frantic stride. A form rose before him, vague in the night. He chapped down with his sword and felt a grim joy at the ripping of flesh and sundering of bone. Now, 
out of the alley, into the street, not much wider or lighter, and down its shadowy length. The slaves would be behind, but there was a one-story house ahead of the usual flat-roofed construction. Up, gasped Alfric, and made a stirrup of his hands. He fairly flung the girl onto the roof. She gave him a hand up, bracing her feet against the parapet, and they fell down together behind it. Alfric heard the slaves' bare feet trotting below him, but dared not risk a glance. Snake-like, he and Freyr slithered across the housetop. Only a narrow space separated them from the next. They jumped that and crossed over to another and higher roof. From this, Alfric peered into the street below. A couple of city guards were walking down it, spears at the ready. Alfric wondered whether he should join them. No, there would be no shield against a blowgun dart sent from an alley. Anyway, they might be priest-loyal. He put his mouth to Freya's ear, even then aware of the dark, silky hair, tickling his lips and whispered, What's next? I don't know. She looked ahead over the nighted roofs to the great central forum, still ruddy bright with torches. Beyond it, the city climbed toward a double hill, on either crest of which was a building. One must be the palace, thought Alfric. It was in the graceful colonnaded style of the later empire, white marble under a maris. Nearly all its windows were dark, but he thought puzzledly that it was surrounded by a ring of fire. The other building was a great grey pile, sprawling its grim massiveness in a red blaze of light. From it came a steady gongbeat and a rising chant, the temple of the two moons, holding vigil at their wedding. The night was huge above them, a vault of infinite crystal black in which the stars glittered in their frosty myriads, and the Milky Way tumbled its bright, mysterious cataract between the constellations. The pale disk of Amaris rode high, painting the city and the hills and the dead sea floor with its cold, ghostly light, and now Danos was swinging rapidly out of the west, brightening the dark and causing weird double shadows that slowly writhed with its changing position. It was bitter chill. The wind blew and blew, hooting down the streets, banging signs and driving dead leaves and sand and bits of parchment before it. Alfred shivered, wishing for the rest of his clothes. In the waxing moonlight he could see sand devils whirling on the sea bottom, a witch's dance, and on such a night trolls and ghosts and the fates themselves might well be abroad. He set his teeth against chattering and tried to fix his mind on real and desperately urgent problems. The priest seemed able to trace us, he said. At least they knew where I went for lodging. Best we worked toward the palace, as you say, but looked for a ruined house or some such place to hide in till morning. 